Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody, Chapter Twenty Two The Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody, Chapter Twenty Two The Fire. Now, fortune, do thy worst. For many years thou, with relentless and unsparing hand, hast sternly poured on our devoted heads the poisoned files of thy fiercest wrath. The early part of the winter of 1837, a year never to be forgotten in the annals of Canadian history, was very severe. During the month of February, the thermometer often ranged from 18 to 27 degrees below zero. Speaking of the coldness of one particular day, a genuine brother Jonathan remarked, with charming simplicity, that it was 30 degrees below zero that morning, and it would have been much colder if the thermometer had been longer. The morning of the 7th was so intensely cold that everything liquid froze in the house. The wood that had been drawn for the fire was green, and it ignited too slowly to satisfy the shivering impatience of women and children. I vented mine in audibly grumbling over the wretched fire, at which I in vain endeavoured to thaw frozen bread and to dress crying children. It so happened that an old friend, the maiden lady before alluded to, had been staying with us for a few days. She had left us for a visit to my sister, and, as some relatives of hers, were about to return to Britain by the way of New York, and had offered to convey letters to friends at home, I had been busy all the day before preparing a packet for England. It was my intention to walk to my sister's with this packet, directly the important affair of breakfast had been discussed, but the extreme cold of the morning had occasioned such delay that it was late before the breakfast things were cleared away. After dressing, I found the air so keen that I could not venture out without some risk to my nose, and my husband kindly volunteered to go in my stead. I had hired a young Irish girl the day before. Her friends were only just located in our vicinity, and she had never seen a stove until she came to our house. After Moody left, I suffered the fire to die away in the Franklin stove in the parlor, and went into the kitchen to prepare bread for the oven. The girl, who was a good-natured creature, had heard me complain bitterly of the cold, and the impossibility of getting the green wood to burn, and she thought that she would see if she could not make a good fire for me and the children against my work was done. Without saying one word about her intention, she slipped out through a door that opened from the parlour into the garden, ran round to the wood-yard, filled her lap with cedar chips, and, not knowing the nature of the stove, filled it entirely with the light wood. Before I had the least idea of my danger, I was aroused from the completion of my task by the crackling and roaring of a large fire, and a suffocating smell of burning soot. I looked up at the kitchen cooking-stove. All was right there. I knew I had left no fire in the parlour stove, but not being able to account for the smoke and the smell of burning, I opened the door and to my dismay found the stove red-hot, from the front plate to the topmost pipe that let out the smoke through the roof. My first impulse was to plunge a blanket snatched from the servant's bed, which stood in the kitchen, into cold water. 
This I thrust into the stove, and upon it threw cold water until all was cool below. I then ran up to the loft, and by exhausting all the water in the house, even to that contained in the boilers upon the fire, contrived to cool down the pipes which passed through the loft. I then sent the girl out of doors to look at the roof, which, as a very deep fall of snow had taken place the day before, I hoped would be completely covered, and safe from all danger of fire. She quickly returned, stamping and tearing her hair, and making a variety of uncouth outcries, from which I gathered that the roof was in flames. This was terrible news, with my husband absent, no man in the house, and a mile and a quarter from any other habitation. I ran out to ascertain the extent of the misfortune, and found a large fire burning in the roof between the two stove pipes. The heat of the fires had melted off all the snow, and a spark from the burning pipe had already ignited the shingles. A ladder, which for several months had stood against the house, had been moved two days before to the barn, which was at the top of the hill near the road. There was no reaching the fire through that source. I got out the dining-table, and tried to throw water upon the roof by standing on a chair placed upon it, but I only expended the little water that remained in the boiler, without reaching the fire. The girl still continued weeping and lamenting. "'You must go for help,' I said. "'Run as fast as you can to my sister's, and fetch your master.' "'And leave you, ma'am, and the children alone with the burning house.' "'Yes, yes, don't stay one moment.' "'I have no shoes, ma'am, and the snow is so deep.' "'Put on your master's boots. Make haste, or we shall be lost before help comes.' The girl put on the boots and started shrieking fire the whole way. This was utterly useless, and only impeded her progress by exhausting her strength. After she had vanished from the head of the clearing into the wood, and I was left quite alone with the house burning over my head, I paused one moment to reflect what had best be done. The house was built of cedar logs. In all probability it would be consumed before any help could arrive. There was a brisk breeze blowing up from the frozen lake, and the thermometer stood at eighteen degrees below zero. We were placed between the two extremes of heat and cold, and there was as much danger to be apprehended from the one as the other. In the bewilderment of the moment, the direful extent of the calamity never struck me. We wanted but this to put the finishing stroke to our misfortunes, to be thrown naked, houseless and penniless upon the world. What shall I save first? was the thought just then uppermost in my mind. Bedding and clothing appeared the most essentially necessary, and without another moment's pause I set to work with a right good will to drag all that I could from my burning home. While little Agnes, Dunbar, and baby Donald filled the air with their cries, Katie, as if fully conscious of the importance of exertion, assisted me in carrying out sheets and blankets, and dragging trunks and boxes some way up the hill, to be out of the way of the burning brands when the roof should fall in. How many anxious looks I gave to the head of the clearing as the fire increased, and the large pieces of burning pine began to fall through the boarded ceiling, about the lower rooms where we were at work. The children I had kept under a large dresser in the kitchen, but it now appeared absolutely necessary to remove them to a place of safety. To expose the young, tender things to the direful cold was almost as bad as leaving them to the mercy of the fire. At last I hit upon a plan to keep them from freezing. I emptied all the clothes out of a large, deep chest of drawers, 
and dragged the empty drawers up the hill. These I lined with blankets, and placed a child in each drawer, covering it well over with the bedding, giving to little Agnes the charge of the baby to hold between her knees, and keep well covered until help should arrive. Ah, how long it seemed coming! The roof was now burning like a brush-heap, and unconsciously the child and I were working under a shelf, upon which were deposited several pounds of gunpowder which had been procured for blasting a well, as all our water had to be brought uphill from the lake. This gunpowder was in a stone jar, secured by a paper stopper. The shelf upon which it stood was on fire, but it was utterly forgotten by me at the time, and even afterwards, when my husband was working on the burning loft over it. I found that I should not be able to take many more trips for goods. As I passed out of the parlour for the last time, Katie looked up at her father's flute, which was suspended upon two brackets, and said, "'Oh, dear Mamma, do save Papa's flute. He will be so sorry to lose it.' God bless the dear child for the thought. The flute was saved, and, as I succeeded in dragging out a heavy chest of clothes, and looked up once more despairingly to the road, I saw a man running at full speed. It was my husband. Help was at hand, and my heart uttered a deep thanksgiving as another and another figure came upon the scene. I had not felt the intense cold, although without cap or bonnet or shawl, with my hands bare and exposed to the bitter biting air. The intense excitement, the anxiety to save all I could, had so totally diverted my thoughts from myself that I had felt nothing of the danger to which I had been exposed. But now that help was near, my knees trembled under me, I felt giddy and faint, and dark shadows seemed dancing before my eyes. The moment my husband and brother-in-law entered the house, the latter exclaimed, "'Moody, the house is gone! Save what you can of your winter stores and furniture!' Moody thought differently. Prompt and energetic in danger, and possessing admirable presence of mind and coolness when others yield to agitation and despair, he sprang upon the burning loft and called for water. Alas, there was none. Snow, snow, hand me up pails full of snow. Oh, it was bitter work filling those pails with frozen snow, but Mr. T and I worked at it as fast as we were able. The violence of the fire was greatly checked by covering the boards of the loft with this snow. More help had now arrived. Young B and S had brought the ladder down with them from the barn, and were already cutting away the burning roof, and flinging the flaming brands into the deep snow. "'Mrs. Moody, have you any pickled meat?' "'We have just killed one of our cows, and salted it for winter stores. "'Well, then, fling the beef into the snow, and let us have the brine.' This was an admirable plan. Wherever the brine wetted the shingles, the fire turned from it, and concentrated into one spot. But I had not time to watch the brave workers on the roof. I was fast yielding to the effects of over-excitement and fatigue, when my brother's team dashed down the clearing, bringing my excellent old friend Miss B and the servant-girl. My brother sprang out, carried me back into the house, and wrapped me up in one of the large blankets scattered about. In a few minutes I was seated with the dear children in the sleigh, and on the way to a place of warmth and safety. Katie alone suffered from the intense cold. The dear little creature's feet were severely frozen, but were fortunately restored by her uncle discovering the fact before she approached the fire, and rubbing them well with snow. In the meanwhile, 
the friends we had left so actively employed at the house succeeded in getting the fire under before it had destroyed the walls. The only accident that occurred was to a poor dog that Moody had called Snarleyow. He was struck by a burning brand thrown from the house, and crept under the barn and died. Beyond the damage done to the building, the loss of our potatoes and two sacks of flour, we had escaped in a manner almost miraculous. This fact shows how much can be done by persons working in union, without bustle and confusion, or running in each other's way. Here were six men who, without the aid of water, succeeded in saving a building which at first sight almost all of them had deemed past hope. In after years, when entirely burnt out in a disastrous fire that consumed almost all we were worth in the world, some four hundred persons were present, with a fire engine to second their endeavours, yet all was lost. Every person seemed in the way, and though the fire was discovered immediately after it took place, nothing was done beyond saving some of the furniture. Our party was too large to be billeted upon one family. Mrs. T. took compassion upon Moody, myself, and the baby, while their uncle received the three children to his hospitable home. It was some weeks before Moody succeeded in repairing the roof, the intense cold preventing any one from working in such an exposed situation. The news of our fire travelled far and wide. I was reported to have done prodigies, and to have saved the greater part of our household goods before help arrived. Reduced to plain prose, these prodigies shrink into the simple, and by no means marvellous fact, that during the excitement I dragged out chests which, under ordinary circumstances, I could not have moved, and that I was unconscious both of the cold and the danger to which I was exposed while working under a burning roof, which had it fallen would have buried both the children and myself under its ruins. These circumstances appeared far more alarming, as all real danger does, after they were past. The fright and overexertion gave my health a shock from which I did not recover for several months, and made me so fearful of fire that from that hour it haunts me like a nightmare. Let the night be ever so serene, all stoves must be shut up, and the hot embers covered with ashes before I dare retire to rest, and the sight of a burning edifice, so common a spectacle in large towns in this country, makes me really ill. This feeling was greatly increased after a second fire when, for some torturing minutes, a lovely boy, since drowned, was supposed to have perished in the burning house. Our present fire led to a new train of circumstances, for it was the means of introducing to Moody a young Irish gentleman who was staying at my brother's house. John E. was one of the best and gentlest of human beings. His father, a captain in the army, had died while his family were quite young, and had left his widow with scarcely any means beyond the pension she received at her husband's death, to bring up and educate a family of five children. A handsome, showy woman, Mrs. E. soon married again, and the poor lads were thrown upon the world. The eldest, who had been educated in the church, first came to Canada in the hope of getting some professorship in the college, or of opening a classical school. He was a handsome, gentlemanly, well-educated young man, but constitutionally indolent, a natural defect which seemed common to all the males of the family, and which was sufficiently indicated by their soft, silky fair hair and milky complexions. R. had the good sense to perceive that Canada was not the country for him. He spent a week under our roof, 
and we were much pleased with his elegant tastes and pursuits, but my husband strongly advised him to try and get a situation as a tutor in some family at home. This he afterwards obtained. He became tutor and travelling companion to the young Lord M., and has since got an excellent living. John, who had followed his brother to Canada without the means of transporting himself back again, was forced to remain, and was working with Mr. S. for his board. He proposed to Moody working his farm upon shares, and as we were unable to hire a man, Moody gladly closed with his offer, and during the time he remained with us, we had every reason to be pleased with the arrangement. It was always a humiliating feeling to our proud minds that hirelings should witness our dreadful struggle with poverty, and the strange shifts we were forced to make in order to obtain even food. But John E. had known and experienced all that we had suffered in his own person, and was willing to share our home with all its privations. Warm-hearted, sincere, and truly affectionate, a gentleman in word, thought, and deed, we found his society and cheerful help a great comfort. Our odd meals became a subject of merriment, and the peppermint and sage tea drank with a better flavour when we had one who sympathised in all our trials, and shared all our toils to partake of it with us. The whole family soon became attached to our young friend, and after the work of the day was over, greatly we enjoyed an hour's fishing on the lake. John E. said that we had no right to murmur, as long as we had health, a happy home, and plenty of fresh fish, milk, and potatoes. Early in May we received an old Irishwoman into our service, who for four years proved a most faithful and industrious creature. And what with John E. to assist my husband on the farm, and old Jenny to help me to nurse the children and manage the house, our affairs, if they were no better in a pecuniary point of view, at least presented a more pleasing aspect at home. We were always cheerful, and sometimes contented, and even happy. How great was the contrast between the character of our new inmate and that of Mr. Malcolm! The sufferings of the past year have been greatly increased by the intolerable nuisance of his company, while many additional debts had been contracted in order to obtain luxuries for him which we never dreamed of purchasing for ourselves. Instead of increasing my domestic toils, John did all in his power to lessen them, and it always grieved him to see me iron a shirt or wash the least article of clothing for him. "'You have too much to do already. I cannot bear to give you the least additional work,' he would say. And he generally expressed the greatest satisfaction at my method of managing the house and preparing our simple fare. The little ones he treated with the most affectionate kindness, and gathered the whole flock about his knees the moment he came into his meals." On a wet day, when no work could be done abroad, Moody took up his flute, or read aloud to us while John and I sat down to work. The young emigrant, early cast upon the world and his own resources, was an excellent hand at the needle. He would make or mend a shirt with the greatest precision and neatness, and cut out and manufacture his canvas trousers and loose summer coats with as much adroitness as the most experienced tailor. Darn his socks and mend his boots and shoes, and often volunteered to assist me in knitting the coarse yarn of the country into socks for the children, while he made the moccasins from the dressed deerskins that we obtained from the Indians. Scrupulously neat and clean in his person, the only thing which seemed to ruffle his calm temper was the dirty work of logging. 
He hated to come in from the field with his person and clothes begrimed with charcoal and smoke. Old Jenny used to laugh at him for not being able to eat his meals without first washing his hands and face. "'Oh, my dear heart, you're too particular entirely. We've no time in the woods to be clean,' she would say to him in answer to his request for soap and a towel. "'And is it soap you're a-wantin'? I tell you that the same is not to the fore. Bating the trouble of making, it's little soap that the mistress can get to wash the clothes for us and the children without your wasting it making your pretty skin as white as a lady's. Do, darlin', go down to the lake and wash there. That basin is big enough anyhow. And John would laugh and go down to the lake to wash in order to appease the wrath of the old woman. John had a great dislike to cats and even regarded with an evil eye our old pet cat Peppermint, who had taken a great fancy to share his bed and board. "'If I tolerate our own cat,' he would say, "'I will not put up with such a nuisance as your friend Amelia sends us in the shape of her ugly Tom. Why, where in the world do you think I found that beast sleeping last night?' I expressed my ignorance. "'In our potato-pot!' Now you will agree with me that potatoes dressed with cat's hair is not a very nice dish. The next time I catch Master Tom in the potato pot, I will kill him. John, you are not in earnest. Mrs. would never forgive any injury done to Tom, who is a great favourite. Let her keep him at home, then. Think of the brute coming a mile through the woods to steal from us all he can find, and then sleeping off the effects of his depredations in the potato pot. I could not help laughing, but I begged John by no means to annoy Amelia by hurting her cat. The next day, while sitting in the parlour at work, I heard a dreadful squall and rushed to the rescue. John was standing, with a flushed cheek, grasping a large stick in his hand, and Tom was lying dead at his feet. "'Oh, the poor cat!' "'Yes, I have killed him, but I am sorry for it now. What will Mrs. say?' She must not know it. I have told you the story of the pig that Jacob killed. You had better bury it with the pig. John was really sorry for having yielded in a fit of passion to do so cruel a thing. Yet a few days after he got into a fresh scrape with Mrs. Animals. The hens were laying up at the barn. John was very fond of fresh eggs, but some strange dog came daily and sucked the eggs. John had vowed to kill the first dog he found in the act. Mister had a very fine bulldog, which he valued very highly, but with Amelia, Chowder was an especial favourite. Bitterly had she bemoaned the fate of Tom, and many were the inquiries she made of us as to his sudden disappearance. One afternoon, John ran into the room. "'My dear Mrs. Moody, what is Mrs.'s dog like?' A large bulldog, brindled black and white. Then, by Jove, I've shot him. John, John, you mean me to quarrel in earnest with my friend. How could you do it? Why, how the deuce should I know her dog from another? I caught the big thief in the very act of devouring the eggs from under your sitting hen, and I shot him dead without another thought. But I will bury him, and she will never find it out a bit more than she did who killed the cat." Some time after this, Amelia returned from a visit at P. The first thing she told me was the loss of the dog. 
She was so vexed at it, she had had him advertised, offering a reward for his recovery. I, of course, was called upon to sympathize with her, which I did with a very bad grace. I did not like the beast, I said. He was cross and fierce, and I was afraid to go up to her house while he was there. Yes, but to lose him so! It is so provoking, and him such a valuable animal. I could not tell how deeply she felt the loss. She would give four dollars to find out who had stolen him. How near she came to making the grand discovery, the sequel will show. Instead of burying him with the murdered pig and cat, John had scratched a shallow grave in the garden, and concealed the dead brute. After tea, Amelia requested to look at the garden, and I, perfectly unconscious that it contained the remains of the murdered chowder, led the way. Mrs., whilst gathering a handful of fine green peas, suddenly stooped, and looking earnestly at the ground, called to me, "'Come here, Susanna, and tell me what has been buried here. It looks like the tail of a dog.' She might have added, "'Of my dog. Murder, it seems, will out.' By some strange chance the grave that covered the mortal remains of Chowder had been disturbed, and the black tail of the dog was sticking out. "'What can it be?' said I, with an air of perfect innocence. "'Shall I call Jenny and dig it up?' "'Oh, no, my dear, it has a shocking smell. But it does look very much like Chowder's tail. Impossible! How could it come among my peas?' "'True.' Besides, I saw Chowder with my own eyes yesterday, following a team, and George C. hopes to recover him for me. Indeed! I am glad to hear it. How these mosquitoes sting! Shall we go back to the house? While we returned to the house, John, who had overheard the whole conversation, hastily disinterred the body of Chowder, and placed him in the same mysterious grave with Tom and the pig. Moody and his friend finished logging up the eight acres which the former had cleared the previous winter. Besides putting in a crop of peas and potatoes, and an acre of Indian corn, reserving the fallow for fall wheat, while we had the promise of a splendid crop of hay off the sixteen acres that had been cleared in 1834. We were all in high spirits, and everything promised fair, until a very trifling circumstance again occasioned us much anxiety and trouble and was the cause of our losing most of our crop. Moody was asked to attend a bee, which was called to construct a corduroy bridge over a very bad piece of road. He and J.E. were obliged to go that morning with wheat to the mill, but Moody lent his yoke of oxen for the work. The driver selected for them at the bee was the brutal M., a man noted for his ill-treatment of cattle, especially if the animals did not belong to him. He gave one of the oxen such a severe blow over the loins with a handspike that the creature came home perfectly disabled, just as we wanted his services in the hayfield and harvest. Moody had no money to purchase, or even to hire a mate for the other ox, but he and John hoped that by careful attendance upon the injured animal he might be restored to health in a few days. They conveyed him to a deserted clearing a short distance from the farm where he would be safe from injury from the rest of the cattle, and early every morning we went in the canoe to carry poor Duke a warm mash, and to watch the progress of his recovery. Ah, ye who revel in this world's wealth, how little can you realize the importance which we, in our poverty, 
attached to the life of this valuable animal. Yes, it even became the subject of prayer, for the bread for ourselves and our little ones depended greatly upon his recovery. We were doomed to disappointment. After nursing him with the greatest attention and care for some weeks, the animal grew daily worse, and suffered such intense agony as he lay groaning upon the ground, unable to rise, that John shot him to put him out of pain. Here, then, were we left without oxen to draw in our hay or secure our other crops. A neighbour who had an odd ox kindly lent us the use of him when he was not employed on his own farm, and John and Moody gave their own work for the occasional loan of a yoke of oxen for a day. But with all these drawbacks, and in spite of the assistance of old Jenny and myself in the field, a great deal of the produce was damaged before it could be secured. The whole summer we had to labour under this disadvantage. Our neighbours were all too busy to give us any help, and their own teams were employed in saving their crops. Fortunately, the few acres of wheat we had to reap were close to the barn, and we carried the sheaves thither by hand, old Jenny proving an invaluable help, both in the harvest and hayfield. Still, with all these misfortunes, Providence watched over us in a signal manner. We were never left entirely without food. Like the widow's crews of oil, our means, though small, were never suffered to cease entirely. We had been for some days without meat, when Moody came running in for his gun. A great she-bear was in the wheat-field at the edge of the wood, very busily employed in helping to harvest the crop. There was but one bullet, and a charge or two of buckshot in the house, but Moody started to the wood with a single bullet in his gun, followed by a little terrier dog that belonged to John E., Old Jenny was busy at the wash-tub, but the moment she saw her master running up the clearing, and knew the cause, she left her work and, snatching up the carving-knife, ran after him, that in case the bear should have the best of the fight, she would be there to help the master. Finding her shoes incommode her, she flung them off in order to run faster. A few minutes after came the report of the gun, and I heard Moody halloo to E, who was cutting stakes for a fence in the wood. I hardly thought it possible that he could have killed the bear, but I ran to the door to listen. The children were all excitement, which the sight of the black monster, borne down the clearing upon two poles, increased to the wildest demonstrations of joy. Moody and John were carrying the prize, and old Jenny, brandishing her carving-knife, followed in the rear. The rest of the evening was spent in skinning and cutting up and salting the ugly creature, whose flesh filled a barrel with excellent meat, in flavour resembling beef, while the short grain and juicy nature of the flesh gave to it the tenderness of mutton. This was quite a godsend, and lasted us until we were able to kill two large, fat hogs in the fall. A few nights after, Moody and I encountered the mate of Mrs. Bruin, while returning from a visit to Amelia in the very depth of the wood. We had been invited to meet our friends, father and mother, who had come up on a short visit to the woods, and the evening passed away so pleasantly that it was near midnight before the little party of friends separated. The moon was down. The wood, through which we had to return, was very dark, the ground being low and swampy, and the trees thick and tall. There was, in particular, one very ugly spot, where a small creek crossed the road. This creek could only be passed by foot-passengers scrambling over a fallen tree, 
which in a dark night was not very easy to find. I begged a torch of Mr., but no torch could be found. Emilia laughed at my fears. Still, knowing what a coward I was in the bush of a night, she found up about an inch of candle, which was all that remained from the evening's entertainment. This she put into an old lanthorn. It will not last you long, but it will carry you over the creek. This was something gained, and off we set. It was so dark in the bush that our dim candle looked like a solitary red spark in the intense surrounding darkness, and scarcely served to show us the path. We went chatting along, talking over the news of the evening, Hector running on before us, when I saw a pair of eyes glare upon us from the edge of the swamp, with the green bright light emitted by the eyes of a cat. "'Did you see those terrible eyes, Moody?' and I clung, trembling, to his arm. "'What eyes?' said he, feigning ignorance. "'It's too dark to see anything. The light is nearly gone, and if you don't quicken your pace and cross the tree before it goes out, you will perhaps get your feet wet by falling into the creek.' "'Good heavens! I saw them again! And do just look at the dog!' Hector stopped suddenly, and, stretching himself along the ground, his nose resting between his forepaws, began to whine and tremble. Presently he ran back to us, and crept under our feet. The cracking of branches and the heavy tread of some large animal sounded close beside us. Moody turned the open lanthorn in the direction from whence the sounds came, and shouted as loud as he could, at the same time endeavouring to urge forward the fear-stricken dog, whose cowardice was only equalled by my own. Just at that critical moment the wick of the candle flickered a moment in the socket, and expired. We were left in perfect darkness, alone with the bear, for such we supposed the animal to be. My heart beat audibly. A cold perspiration was streaming down my face, but I neither shrieked nor attempted to run. I don't know how Moody got me over the creek. One of my feet slipped into the water, but expecting, as I did every moment, to be devoured by Master Bruin, that was a thing of no consequence. My husband was laughing at my fears, and every now and then he turned towards our companion, who continued following us at no great distance, and gave him an encouraging shout. Glad enough was I, when I saw the gleam of the light from our little cabin window shine out among the trees, and the moment I got within the clearing I ran, without stopping, until I was safely within the house. John was sitting up for us, nursing Donald. He listened with great interest to our adventure with the bear, and thought that Bruin was very good to let us escape without one affectionate hug. Perhaps it would have been otherwise had he known, Moody, that you had not only killed his good lady, but were dining sumptuously off her carcass every day. The bear was determined to have something in return for the loss of his wife. Several nights after this, our slumbers were disturbed, about midnight, by an awful yell, and old Jenny shook violently at our chamber door. "'Master! Master dear! Get up with you this moment, or the bear will destroy the cattle entirely!' Half asleep, Moody sprang from his bed, seized his gun, and ran out. I threw my large cloak round me, struck a light, and followed him to the door. The moment the latter was unclosed, 
some calves that we were rearing rushed into the kitchen, closely followed by the larger beasts who came bellowing headlong down the hill, pursued by the bear. It was a laughable scene, as shown by that paltry tallow candle. Moody, in his nightshirt, taking aim at something in the darkness, surrounded by the terrified animals, old Jenny, with a large knife in her hand, holding on to the white skirts of her master's garment, making outcry loud enough to frighten away all the wild beasts in the bush, herself almost in a state of nudity. "'Och, master dear, don't tempt the ill-conditioned creather with charging too near. Think of the wife and the childer. Let me come at the rampaging beast, and I'll stick the knife into the heart of him.' Moody fired. The bear retreated up the clearing with a low growl. Moody and Jenny pursued him some way, but it was too dark to discern any object at a distance. I, for my part, stood at the open door, laughing until the tears ran down my cheeks, at the glaring eyes of the oxen, their ears erect, and their tails carried gracefully on a level with their backs, as they stared at me and the light in blank astonishment. The noise of the gun had just roused John E. from his slumbers. He was no less amused than myself, until he saw that a fine yearling heifer was bleeding, and found, upon examination, that the poor animal, having been in the claws of the bear, was dangerously, if not mortally, hurt. "'I hope,' he cried, "'that the brute has not touched my foal.' I pointed to the black face of the filly peeping over the back of an elderly cow. "'You see, John, that Brun preferred veal. There's your horsey, as Dunbar calls her, safe and laughing at you.' Moody and Jenny now returned from the pursuit of the bear. E. fastened all the cattle into the backyard, close to the house. By daylight he and Moody had started in chase of Bruin, whom they tracked by his blood some way into the bush. But here he entirely escaped their search. THE BEARS OF CANADA Oh, bear me from this savage land of bears, for tis indeed unbearable to me. I'd rather cope with vilest worldly cares, or writhe with cruel sickness of the sea. Oh, bear me to my own bare land of hills, where I'd be sure brave bare-legged lads to see, bare cakes, bare rocks, and whiskey stills, and bare-legged nymphs to smile once more on me. I'd bear the heat, I'd bear the freezing air, of equatorial realm or arctic sea. I'd sit all bare at night, and watch the northern bear, and bless my soul that he was far from me. I'd bear the poor rates, tithes, and all the ills John Bull must bear, who takes them all, poor sinner, as patients do when forced to gulp down pills, and water gruel drink in lieu of dinner. I'd bear the bareness of all barren lands, before I'd bear the bearishness of this, bare head, bare feet, bare legs, bare hands, bare everything but want of social bliss. But should I die in this drear land of bears, O oh, ship me off, my friends, discharge the sable wearers, for if you don't, in spite of priests and prayers, the bears will come, and eat up corpse and bearers. J. W. D. M. End of chapter 22 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario by Moira Fogarty, December 2010.